Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen here with Real Clear Defense Editor David Craig. We are continuing to focus on the unfolding situation in Afghanistan, but today we wanted to provide some context for the rapid collapse of the Afghan military and government. What can we learn from looking back over the past 20 years to the internal criticisms expressed by those fighting the war? And how is that affecting today's veterans? We are joined by Steve Liver, who covers the military for the Omaha World Herald and previously wrote for Stars and Stripes. Most recently, he has been reporting on how Gold Star families and veterans are dealing with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. We are also joined by Craig Whitlock, investigative journalist at The Washington Post and author of The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. Based in part on confidential interviews obtained through two Freedom of Information lawsuits, it reveals the doubts policymakers and military leaders were sharing in private throughout the war, in stark contrast to their optimistic assessments in public. Craig Whitlock and Steve Liver, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Absolutely. Craig, first, just start by telling us about the core of the book that you've are uh, that's coming out this August. Uh, the interviews from SIGAR, what were they? And briefly, what do they tell us? Sure. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, had conducted about 400 interviews with people who played a role in the war. And this is from senior people, generals, diplomats, White House officials, down to uh, service members, enlisted folks, aid workers, uh, NGO people, you name it. And they conducted these interviews over a few years. And the purpose was to try and identify lessons learned from the war in Afghanistan so that uh, this, these lessons could be applied to the future. Um, unfortunately, SIGAR kept just about all of the interviews confidential. Uh, once the Washington Post found out about them, we thought this would be a great way to find out what people really thought about mistakes made during the war. And so we, we asked for them all. We thought there was, this was public information. Uh, Long story short, the inspector general disagreed. We had to take them to court with two lawsuits, as you said, and it took us three years, but we finally obtained most of the documents and were able to identify uh, about 100 of the people who gave interviews. And this was the basis for a series in the Washington Post in December 2019. Uh, it's also a large portion of the material for the book that's coming out uh, this month. For the book, which I've been working on for the past year and a half, I also obtained hundreds of other oral history interviews, uh, most of them from the Army Center for uh, Combat Studies Institute at Fort Leavenworth, uh, as well as some other sources like the University of Virginia and a Diplomatic Studies Institute. So the book is based entirely on documents, whether from the Inspector General or oral histories with different sources. And I think this gives it a special flavor because this is you know, looking back historically, these aren't people just trying to spin things their way in interviews with journalists. These are people who are talking for the historical record. And and how far uh, did that include anyone from the Trump administration? Did it go up to 2017 or? They pretty much stopped in 2017. So a little bit in 2017, but most all of them are dealing with the Bush administration and the Obama years. And you have to remember when the inspector general started this project, 
the assumption was the war was ending on Obama's watch. He had promised to end the war and withdraw all troops by the end of his second term in 2016. Uh, and of course, that didn't happen and, you know, dragged on till now. In a previous episode, we spoke with Elliot Ackerman, who compared the Afghanistan war the past two decades to a Shakespearean tragedy in five acts or so. And I thought that it was it was useful to think of each of these periods distinctly, you know, the initial response to Al-Qaeda, the forgotten period where the focus shifted to Iraq under Bush, the rise in violence and the surge and the, the I'm doing air quotes, the end of combat in 2014 under Obama. Then we had the maintenance period where we were simply holding the status quo and and then the, the collapses we're, uh, we're watching today. You lay out this consistent thread through both Republican and Democratic administrations, so this, this disconnect between what they reported privately and how they sold it on the Hill or to the White House. In your opinion and what you're reading in, in, the, uh, in the papers, did American political leaders willingly mislead the American people? Did, did the military tell the policymakers what they wanted to hear? Was everyone self-deluded? Was it lying or willful ignorance? Yeah, and that's something I thought about for a long time. I think certainly there is some willful ignorance, people hoping for the best. But there's no question when you go back and look at the historical record, uh, when you look at these documents, that there was intentional deception with the American people to make it appear as though the war uh, was going well, or at least was making progress, trying to retain public support, when in fact, the people in charge knew things weren't going well, that they were regressing. And over time, that really they had come to the internal conclusion that the war was unwinnable. The best they could hope for was a stalemate and some kind of negotiated settlement. And really, my book puts that out in a chronology, and it puts out example after example where uh, Bush administration officials or Obama administration officials, and to a lesser degree under Trump, they would say one thing in public and say the complete opposite internally. And we could match up the timing of these statements. For instance, I'll give you one example. On the fifth anniversary of September 11th in 2006, uh, the war commander at that time was Lieutenant General Carl Eikenberry. And he gave an interview to ABC News on the fifth anniversary of September 11th. And he started off by saying, we're winning in Afghanistan. And he hedged a little bit and said, well, we haven't won completely yet, but we're winning. And he said everything was moving in the right direction uh, and things were looking good. Uh, I obtained a diplomatic cable that was sent just days previously. It was classified at the time, later declassified, from the U.S. ambassador, a guy named Ron Newman, in which he sent this cable back to Washington, to the White House, shared it with Eikenberry, where the cable starts off with a complete opposite. It says, we're not winning the war in Afghanistan, right? And you see example after example of this, where they say one thing in public, when you go back and hold up these internal documents to the public statements, it's, you know, th the only conclusion you can draw is that they're intentionally deceiving the American people about what's happening. Now, we can, you know, debate and discuss why they did that, but there's no question there's tons of examples of them deliberately distorting the truth. Steve, you've been doing reporting recently, talking to uh, to veterans and Gold Star families in, in your area, Nebraska, Iowa. Um, I think that most veterans had a very different experience on the ground than what was being portrayed maybe by the political leaders. 
uh, how are veterans reacting to what's happening today? And, you know, is that mental, uh, that cognitive dissonance between the two that, that Craig's book talks about, is that part of how, you know, does that complicate how they feel about the war and about their service? Well, yeah, I certainly found people with sort of mixed views. And in fact, I talked to people who had differing opinions over whether we should actually be leaving now or not. What I did find among veterans is that they're, regardless of what they, what they feel in, in those terms, they're very, very invested in this war and they, they're deeply concerned about what they're seeing in Afghanistan this week about the people who are being left behind. And there was a unanimous feeling that we need to help these people and we really need to get them out. So in that sense, they're invested in a way that I don't think the average American citizen ever was. And it's distressing to them. And I think always has been distressing to them how much the American public is disengaged from what's going on in Afghanistan. And it does make me wonder how much was the public lulled by these public assurances that Craig is talking about, um, that, that, that he's discussing in his, uh, or that he's found in his reporting, these public assurances versus these very different accounts that they're giving in, in interviews for the historical record. Craig, how big of a problem was corruption in Afghanistan? We, you know, we literally started the war with duffel bags full of cash. Uh, and that seemed to be uh, a, a main weapon in our arsenal at every stage. Did we contribute to that corruption? I mean, uh, you know, according to your book, you know, 352,000 soldiers and police were, were counted as members of the country's security forces, but only 254,000 could be confirmed by the Afghan government. This whole kind of ghost army issue. Um you know, should it be a surprise to policymakers that Afghan forces in the past week said, you know, wait a second, we, we, we haven't gotten any ammunition for a while. We haven't been getting paid. We haven't been, you know, that the, the local commanders at each at, at, at their level were siphoning things off. Um, what role did corruption play across this past 20 year cycle or what you were seeing in your reporting? So corruption was a lethal factor to our whole strategy in Afghanistan. Uh, and yes, it wasn't just the Afghans pocketing stuff, although there is an enormous amount of that for 20 years. But the United States really enabled that because particularly since Obama took office, we spent so much money in Afghanistan, whether on defense contracts or on aid projects or on so-called nation building. It was far more than a, a country like Afghanistan with a really destitute economy, more than it could possibly absorb. Uh, you know, we threw so much money at them, there was no way they could put it all to good use. So in the Afghanistan Papers documents, you hear person after person acknowledging this, saying, you know, it wasn't just that the Afghans were corrupt, we made it worse and we enabled it. You know, you can't have corruption without money, and we were the ones with the money. Um, and th they've known this. There was one interview with an army colonel now retired, named Chris Kalenda, and he advised 
uh, two or three war commanders in Afghanistan, as well as senior civilians at the Pentagon. And he said that by 2006, Afghanistan had descended into what he called a kleptocracy. And kleptocracy was sort of a, a fancy word for a state that exists just to pillage from its own citizens, that the whole reason for the government to be in existence was for its leaders to line their, whole, their own pockets. And he said the kleptocracy was really the worst of it. He said he sort of compared ordinary corruption to uh, skin cancer. Like if you catch that in time, you can recover. Uh, he said the next stage of corruption is like lung cancer. If you diagnose it early enough, you can recover. But he said kleptocracy is like brain cancer. Once you get it, it's fatal and that's it. And he said ever since 2006, that was the level of corruption in Afghanistan. And so he thought that as of 15 years ago, the corruption was so bad that there was nothing they could do to root it out and that that really doomed the war effort from that point forward. David, what's your perspective on all of this? I mean, it seems like there was, uh, you know, that at the operational level, at the tactical level, uh, members of the military were clearly aware, aware of all of the hurdles that they had in both, you know, when we were trying to stand up a government, but then later when we were trying to train forces, at, at, at what point does that transition to the, uh, you know, the political leadership within the military and then the, the civilian leadership? At what point are people, I mean, Craig reports, I think in one section you talk about, you know, field commanders saying, I can't certify this Afghan unit uh, to as, as ready. Uh, and their commanders up the chain saying, no, actually, you're going to certify them regardless. At, at, at what point is it we're sending intelligence up the ladder that's essentially what people want to hear rather than what they should be hearing? Oh, that's a great question, John. Um, in fact, I, I was in Iraq, of course, from 2006 to 2009, and one of my civilian counterparts – who I met again in, in 2011 in Afghanistan, we had discussed corruption in Iraq and then Afghanistan and how different it was because in Iraq, it was more like the type of corruption you'd see up in the Northeast of the United States where the union or contractors are going to sift money off of any sort of government contract and the, you know, the family gets paid off or whatever network they have. That was sort of the case in Iraq. Uh, but the Iraqis still had some sense of national pride. They wanted to, they completed the project and it was, it was done to where they thought it would last. Afghanistan, on the other hand, he said it was just stunning that pretty much everyone, all of our Afghans that we were dealing with didn't have faith that we were going to stay. Um, and therefore felt as though they had to siphon it as, much and all money they could for their own personal survivability in the future. Um, and there was pressure from above to make things look as though they were going well. In fact, even when I was in Iraq, I mean, there were, there were people that even on the Intel side, I mean, this is stuff that isn't even released to the public. There were certain people you weren't allowed to report on that could be seen by other people on a classified level. I mean, it's kind of stunning to me. Uh, I could never understand exactly why. Um, and then in Afghanistan, I'm sure I didn't see it personally myself, but uh, Craig could probably speak to this better. 
but I'm sure that people were cajoled and uh, cudgeled to portray a brighter picture than what they were encountering in person when they were mentoring uh, various elements of the Afghan security forces. Craig, is that, uh, you could probably elaborate yeah, on Craig, that. Yeah, Craig, does that match up with what you were seeing in the in the interviews? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the corruption became a secondary priority that U.S. officials acknowledged it was a big problem, but you know, who are you going to, what are you going to do about it, right? You try and keep it out of the wrong people's hands, or you try and persuade your allies not to stick it in their pocket. But, you know, we put these people in power. These were our allies who were pocketing the money to a large degree. So what are you going to do about it? There was one interview in the Afghanistan papers where it was a, a civilian had been over there uh, trying to work with the interior ministry to mentor them, to try and you know, the, the interior ministry was in charge of the Afghan police. And one thing they were trying to do is how do we pay the salaries of all these police officers, right? There's not a real banking system or not very much of one in Afghanistan in those days. So this civilian was trying to set up a mobile money payment so that uh, the, the whole purpose was so it, the salaries would actually go. So they were direct the payments instead of going through the hands of people who were going to siphon right. some off. Yeah. And so they went to the interior minister to plead their case for setting up this mobile money payments. And the interior minister fell asleep during the meeting and just was totally uninterested. And finally said, <laughs> oh, okay, you can go do it, but only in this one out of the way province, you can do right. a test case because they had no interest in making this work because that would make it harder to commit graft. And the right, whole system right. was really built on that. Right. So let's, let's, Pivot to that 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 middle phase. What what I think is kind of a crucial turning point when um, President Obama is elected. You know, he campaigns on withdrawing from Afghanistan. Um, you know, he had uh, you know a bit of a pause in Afghanistan as he was quote unquote reviewing Afghanistan policy and made a big deal that they were internally kind of you know searching their hearts and souls and minds of what the best solution was and 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 at the time vice president biden was a huge part of reviewing the afghanistan policy biden had previously when back when he was a senator been you know vocally in favor of nation state building by that time he was shifting his opinion uh there was you know famously this kind of argument between a big footprint and a small footprint um what did you see in the papers? Did did you get any greater insight into what were the the opinions that were being presented to President Obama at the time, and ultimately, you know, his choice to to double down and to uh, push for the surge? And then, of course, you know, that oh, the whole separate issue of uh, announcing a date for withdrawal as a part of that surge. Uh, did you get any greater insight into that review process as the new president came in? There wasn't a whole lot about the review process in terms of uh, Biden himself, although that was certainly acknowledged. People said that, you know, in retrospect, he was right to raise some of those questions. There were other criticisms of the review and whether the surge made sense or not. And I was struck by some comments made by some NATO officials who said that when General Stanley McChrystal, who was uh, the war commander uh, in 2009, 2010, uh, you know, he, of course, was. We, Obama had already sent additional troops to Afghanistan, but McChrystal was named commander and he wanted another review to decide if they should 
expand even more with additional troops and expand this counterinsurgency strategy. And there was a lot of criticism of McChrystal's strategy review, saying that the United States was repeating some mistakes it had made throughout the war, which was namely, it never really identified clear objectives for the mission, that there was very little attention paid to Al-Qaeda, for instance, in McChrystal's strategy review, it right. sort of mentioned them, but it was all- Which is ironic, given his background in special forces. It wasn't, you know, it, it seemed like he was leaning towards a, a, a much more tra- traditional infantry presence than, you know, even a, you know, a smaller, more targeted counterterrorism uh, presence, which you'd guess from his background. But yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's right, though. And I, I went back and read McChrystal's review again, because I was surprised that some of these NATO officials said they had to push him- to insert Al-Qaeda in the report, they said this was the whole point of the war, right? To go after Al-Qaeda, we need to focus on that more. So finally they did, but there were even some more fundamental uh, disagreements in McChrystal's review that I didn't appreciate at the time. Some of the European allies said, you know, there was a big debate over whether to even call it a war, that from the European perspective, from the Germans and others, they said, well, they were mostly there for peacekeeping and from, perspective of international law, they had qualms about calling it a war. And this, again, I was shocked by this, that they were still having this discussion about basic mission statements. Is this a war or not? They said they finally went to the lawyers and the lawyer said, okay, you have to insert a line in McChrystal's report saying, uh, this is not a war in the traditional sense. And that was okay with the NATO allies. So, I mean, you think about it, this is eight years into it. They can't figure out Who's the enemy, right? Is it just Al-Qaeda? Is it also the Taliban? Who qualifies as Taliban? You know, who's the enemy and is this a war or not? And that just shows you, you know, it's kind of absurd, right? You, you don't know who the enemy is and you right. can't define the mission. So even though there's this big strategy. Just because they're not a tank battalion coming across the phone gap, that's not a war. I know it doesn't make any sense, right? But it just gets back to what were we trying to accomplish? What was the objective? What was right. the mission? Right. And this was never clear. So Dave, just again, looking back on the, the time that you were there and, and of course, you know, what you've uh, observed since, how did that play out for the the uh, commanders and for the soldiers on the ground, you know, that we hear the same criticism we had of, of Vietnam. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a 20 year war. It was 21 year wars when troops would rotate out, you know, the their replacements would try the exact same things that the previous um, uh, folks had done. Well, you know, what were you what were you seeing in that kind of I just it seems like no one was was getting the message. Yeah, when I was there in 2011, which was the tail end of this President Obama's surge, and I guess sort of the frustration there was, why did we bother surging when we already announced the drawdown of the surge? That kind of defeated the purpose of surging to a certain degree. And ironically, the surge showed signs of actually working to where we were building Afghan security capacity they were beginning to be successful. But the one burning thing for us, and you know, I'd mentioned this many times before, was we still weren't addressing the Pakistan issue. And it was extremely frustrating for the military and the troops we had. We were in, of course, Helmand Province. In the sense that, that, that the border was so porous and the Taliban would just retreat across the border yes. to Pakistan and receive. Yeah, all the... All the <clears throat> All the mid and senior level commanders lived in Qatar, Pakistan for the most part. 
And yet we were doing, from what we could tell, we either weren't allowed to do anything about it or we just weren't <clears throat> doing anything about it. So to a certain extent, we felt like we were chasing our tail, you know. And right. I, so I, I'd be interested to know what Craig feels about that and, and what might have come across from the SICAR uh, reporting as well. Well, again, this seems like an obvious issue. You were there, right? Everybody knew the Taliban was coming over the border from, from Pakistan. That's where they're able to regroup, resupply, get new fighters. The stunning thing is, again, in McChrystal's strategy review in 2009, in this 60-some page report that he delivered to the, the Pentagon, there's barely any mention in there of Pakistan. In fact, he makes the argument that he sort of acknowledges there's only so much you can do about what's going on in Pakistan and comes to the conclusion that his strategy could still be successful without fully addressing what's going on in Pakistan, which, of course, flies in the face of what most people thought at the time. And in fact, of common sense and history, that as long as you have the safe haven across the border where the guerrillas can run to, uh, you're going to have a really tough time uh, winning the conflict. So I was surprised by that, that that wasn't they kind of brushed it under the carpet. And I don't know if it was because McChrystal just knew he couldn't do anything about it or there was limited capacity for dealing with it diplomatically and militarily, but they, they just, they never came to terms with that. So thinking about that, I mean, thinking about the relationship between uh, Pakistan, the ISI, the Taliban, you know, Al-Qaeda, you know, throughout just how complicated all those relationships were, um, you know, I think the conventional wisdom among most members of the public is, oh, well, you know, we we won that part, right? We we dismantled uh, the capacity of Al Qaeda. We killed bin Laden. Um, you know, President Biden recently stated Al Qaeda is gone. Uh, you know, he later revised those comments to say he meant they were significantly diminished. But, you know, as recently as a few days ago, you know, uh, VOA is reporting that uh, the Taliban has placed security for Kabul in the hands of the Haqqani network and the Haqqani network, you know, famously have deep ties with Al Qaeda. Let's talk about maybe it's the silence in those conversations about Al Qaeda for as much of the war as we were talking about. But but Craig, what, what were you seeing about the self-assessments of how successful we were in diminishing the capacity of of Al Qaeda? Uh, and, you know, what does that bode for the future? Well, I think we were very successful in all but eliminating al-Qaeda's presence from Afghanistan. Uh, in fact, when I, I covered the Pentagon as a beat reporter from 2010 to 2016, and every time this question came up uh, to a war commander, somebody back at, at the Pentagon, the assessment was there's fewer than 100 al-Qaeda followers in Afghanistan. And this was, I don't want to say an afterthought, but in terms of what kind of factor the Al-Qaeda fighters were in the broader war, they were almost a non-factor. They were people that we were keeping an eye on. They were almost all in the border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan, that this was not a, a factor, a broader factor in the war. Now, this has always been the worry, right? That if, if the Taliban was able to take over Afghanistan or even the portions of the country they've controlled, could Al-Qaeda come back and have a haven? And I don't mean to minimize that. That's certainly a concern. But I do wonder, uh, it's as Secretary Bob Gates always used to say, the United States has uh, a real history of fighting 
the last war and always focusing on the old war and not looking ahead to new threats. And I think uh, we're still fighting 9-11, right? We're still seeing Afghanistan as the same place it was 20 years ago when bin Laden and his organization were based in Afghanistan. But we're not really, I, I think Al-Qaeda moved on, right? After 9-11, those leaders fled Afghanistan. They dispersed to other countries, Pakistan most prominently, also Yemen, Somalia, North Africa, uh, Syria, Iraq, Europe. Uh, you know, I'd be more worried if I was an intelligence official about Al-Qaeda followers in Western countries. Uh, that's often where we see the threats coming from. You know, having some let's say there's 50 Al-Qaeda guys in eastern Afghanistan. That's always a concern. But, you know, the idea that they're going to be able to pull off another 911, another 911, I'd say that's still pretty remote and maybe doesn't justify keeping thousands and thousands of U.S. troops over there to keep an eye on them. So trying to bring it up to the present, Steve, I wanted to get you back in here. Uh, you know, looking back at the Vietnam War, you know, we had more than 280,000 refugees come over to the U.S. at the end of the war. Uh, we're looking at potentially significant numbers of refugees coming to the U.S. Uh, from Afghanistan. Hopefully, uh, those that put their lives on the line to support U.S. efforts there um, and that the SIV process is going to improve. Uh, what are you hearing from veterans uh, in in your reporting in terms of support for bringing the refugees over their con their concern for the people that uh, that they worked with? One of the things I found almost universally among the veterans is that they are personally involved right now, even as we speak, in efforts to bring people who they knew. Uh, over. They're really deeply concerned and really, really want to see these people who helped us. You know, they, they feel like we made a commitment there. And I think we did. I mean, I think that's, that's a fair statement. And so they really want these people brought out. Um, I spoke with a veteran named Tom Brewer. He's a retired colonel. He's now a state legislator here in Nebraska. And he, he was almost continuously in Afghanistan from 2001 till 2012 when he received a serious wound and had to be medically retired. Uh, he did six or eight tours, something like that. He said he's personally working on, on the cases of 55 different people, and he's making calls and writing letters for all of them. So, so they're very invested in this. And I was interested to hear from Craig about Chris Kalenda. He's another person. He's from Nebraska also. And I've known him for about 20 years. And I was very interested to read his comments in the Afghanistan papers. Um, he, he has an interesting background because he was personally involved in the, the 2010 to 2012 round of negotiations and also in a behind the scenes way helped set up the 2017 negotiations. Um, but again, he knows all kinds of people there, and he's also writing letters, uh, helping to bring people over even as we speak. So they're having some success in the past week, but this is something that they feel really intensely, and every veteran that I talk to has been up nights working on bringing people here 
for the past week, week and a half, and many of them long before that. So, Craig, final thoughts from your perspective. You know, I we were in Afghanistan long enough to have tried a little bit of everything. And I think uh, in the media, you can find someone saying, look, I was right because I advocated X. If we just had done X a little bit more, if we just killed a few more people or spent a little bit more on nation building or been there a little longer or X, Y, and Z, you know, I would have been right. Uh, and, you know, obviously no one wants to see what's what's currently happening in, in terms of the withdrawal. What's your takeaway from reading what people said at the time, uh, their their candid opinions about how things were going, uh, you know, and and what do you what would you hope that the lessons of the war would be uh, that we would take away from this experience? Uh, I think you put it really well. I mean, it's easy now for everybody to point fingers and say they knew what should have happened. I, I don't think there were easy answers, and I think right now the best thing people do is kind of take a big dose of humility and recognize that, you know, these are very difficult questions. And clearly the United States overreached in Afghanistan, tried to do too much. And we do need to go back and learn lessons. I don't think there was any crystal clear turning point, whereas if we had turned right instead of turning left, this would have all turned out well. There were certainly moments when uh, things might have turned out differently. You know, two of them are one, Clearly, we should have found a way to incorporate the Taliban into the Afghan political system a lot earlier. Uh, I under, you know, there were opportunities to do that in 2001, 2002, 2004, and then during the surge. But I recognize, look, that was really hard to do back in 2001. The, the United States, the people of the United States were very much in favor of the war after uh, September 11th, and they thought it was really important to defend the country. And, you know, nobody was in the mood to negotiate with the Taliban uh, after they were removed from power. Uh, the Bush administration, I think, made a mistake in lumping them together with the al-Qaeda as the same terrorist group. That was sort of the reaction at the time. There should have been a way to separate the two out and recognize that al-Qaeda were foreign fighters with a global agenda, whereas Taliban was focused on Afghanistan. But I also recognize that would have been tough to do back in 2001, 2002. We, we felt like there was no need to do that. People thought the Taliban was defeated. Uh, but over in subsequent opportunities, maybe if we'd had a little less hubris, uh, a little more humility about understanding Afghanistan, uh, that would have been a good idea. But look, again, I recognize this would have been hard. The other big pivot point was, as you pointed out, when we went into Iraq, uh, in the Afghanistan papers, you just hear uh, horror story after horror story of how Afghanistan suffered from neglect in terms of uh, manpower, resources, and just high-level attention. And frankly, the Bush administration let the war drift. Uh, in some ways, the most shocking memo to me that I saw out of the Afghanistan papers was a memo that Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, wrote in 2002 one of his one of his snowflakes drifting down from on high. Yeah, one of his snowflake memos. It was after he made a visit to the Oval Office to see Bush, and he was recounting how he asked the president, you know, Mr. President, uh, General Tommy Franks, who's the CENTCOM commander at the time, and General Dan McNeil, who was the war commander in Afghanistan, are going to be around this week. Uh, I heard you wanted to meet with them, 
And according to Rumsfeld, Bush responded, oh, Tommy Franks, yeah, I want to meet with him to talk about Iraq. Uh, but who's General McNeil? And Rumsfeld said, well, oh, he's, your, he's your commander in Afghanistan. And Bush said, oh, well, I don't need to meet with him. Right. So not only did he not know who his top general was, but he's like, Afghanistan, forget that. I need to focus on Iraq. So I think to me that summed it up just how distracted the Bush administration became. And at that critical moment when they needed to stabilize Afghanistan, they just shifted all their attention to another country. Well, I think there's plenty of blame to go around over throughout the government, throughout the military, across four administrations. Uh, certainly, I, I recommend to our listeners that they check out the Afghanistan papers. It's extremely useful uh, in the long term to have a record to compare what people are saying uh, and not not have people rewriting their own memories, let alone the national story. David, last word. What's What's your advice when you and other veterans are reading Craig's book or watching some of the difficult images we're seeing coming out of Afghanistan, how should they think about their service, uh, the, the sacrifices people made, their families made, when you have this kind of dissonance between what people were saying uh, privately and publicly and you know just how difficult the current situation is, how, how do you think about it and what do, what do you tell your peers? It's a, that's a great question, and I think one of the more important things that Craig highlighted in all of this was sort of a leadership failure from the civilians at the top levels of government all the way down to our senior general and flag officers, so to speak, in regards to Iraq and Afghanistan. And it doesn't, like we've all said, it doesn't even matter which administration you're talking about, but... When we get to these hard decisions, if the military wants to say that we should have executed the Afghan war in a different way, then when they're may, when they're in a hearing in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee or on the Hill, they should be expressing that, I think. Um, people need to be aware. They should be less concerned about maintaining their position of authority within the Pentagon and more interested in what the sacrifices of myself and other veterans are committing in these, in these various wars. Um, and that's the most saddening and disheartening thing out of all this. And hopefully this can lead to a real discussion on what it means to be a leader and what all that entails and the responsibility it entails uh, when we discuss getting involved in future wars. In the current situation in Afghanistan, it's not just all everyone being being stuck outside the wire at the moment. It was just the utter lack of planning. Um, people at the Pentagon must have known that this hardened deadline would not allow for us to withdraw properly. And why they didn't speak out in April or May can't all be pushed on President Biden or even his staff, I don't think. I think someone at the Pentagon needed to speak up and speak out and let everyone know that this is. Well, I, I mean, you know, we've had even, you know, former uh, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff say, you know, we were wrong. We we <laughs> thought they would last, you know, minimum 30 days, not, you know, not a week, uh, let alone. I think everyone just thought it would take longer they thought they all thought they had time 
I mean, President Trump thought he had more time. He, you know, under Trump, there was not, uh, you know, there was actually a slowdown of processing of SIVs. So, uh, you know, I think that the the pattern that Craig is describing in the book mm -hmm. clearly persisted that people, you know, believed their own, you know, drank their own Kool-Aid to a certain extent. Steve, you were you were wanted to jump in there. Yeah. One of the questions that I asked when I was talking both to Gold Star mothers and to veterans last week was because they all had misgivings about what happened and they were dismayed that the Taliban is now in command. And I said, well, would you change anything? You know, would you would you tell your son not to go and or would you change your service or say, no, I, I don't want to do this? And every single one of them said, if I had it to do over, I would do it again. The Gold Star Mothers said, I completely support my son's decision to go into the army, to go to Afghanistan, because he really believed in what he was doing. He was there to help people. And that's what I heard again and again is, even with what's happened now, we felt like we were helping people while we were there. And so in that sense, and and. I gained valuable experience. I met people who who broadened my experience. And, and I agree with that just as a reporter who spent a little a limited amount of time over there. You know, I met people who whom I would never forget. And and that's true many times over with the veterans who spent years and years and uh, years and years of their lives over there. Well, on that note, we will have to end it there for today. Although America's troop presence in Afghanistan may be coming to an end, I expect the consequences of our involvement are far from finished. And I hope you will both come back in the future to continue helping us try to understand it all. Craig Whitlock, Steve Liver, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out RealClearDefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military, defense, and national security issues that matter. You can subscribe to Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.